I'm Bonnie Lin, Director of the China Power Project and Senior Fellow for Asian Security at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. In this episode of the China Power Podcast, we're examining Chinese sharp power and its influence on democracies. In the past few years, researchers have found that the Chinese Communist Party has dramatically scaled up its efforts to challenge democracies abroad and shape key global narratives. Instances such as China's censorship of sports figures abroad, influence over political and business elites to curry economic favor, or efforts to overtly or covertly amplify party narratives about COVID's origins or other regime priorities have become too commonplace. China's sharp power, or its ability to penetrate or manipulate targeted democratic countries and institutions, has significant implications for open societies such as the United States. Research by organizations such as the National Endowment for Democracy have found that industries such as commerce, media, the knowledge sector, technology, and culture and entertainment in democracies are especially vulnerable to disinformation campaigns. From authoritarian countries, as globalization continues to deepen and ties between democratic and autocratic countries become more complex, how does China plan to utilize its sharp power to promote its political agenda, and how should countries such as the United States respond? Ahead of this week's summit for democracy hosted by the Biden administration, here to discuss the evolution of China's sharp power and its influence on democracies, I am joined by two guests, Mr. Kevin Shives and Ms. Jessica Ludwig. Kevin Shives is the associate director at the International Forum for Democratic Studies, the research and analytical arm of the National Endowment for Democracy. For nearly 15 years, Kevin served as a manager and advisor at State Department offices, including the China Desk. He helped lead U.S. diplomatic and government responses to strategic competition with China, global disinformation, and the Asia Pacific's rise, along with assignments elsewhere in Washington D.C. At the Department of Defense, the Office of the U.S. Trade Representative, and Congress, Jessica Ludwig is a senior program officer, also at the forum. Her research focuses on authoritarian influence in emerging democracies, with a particular interest in China and Russia's engagement with Latin America. She is co-editor of the 27 report "Sharp Power: Rising Authoritarian Influence" and the subsequent series of papers on sharp power and democratic resilience. Her writing has been published in Foreign Affairs, Foreign Policy, Global Americans, and the Journal of Democracy. Jessica and Kevin, thank you both for joining us today. Yeah, it's great to be here. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks for the invitation. We're looking forward to the discussion. Can you start us off by helping us gain a better understanding of China's sharp power? How would you describe China's sharp power, and how does it compare to other forms of power, such as soft or hard power? Well, sharp power as a concept is intended to help situate the evolving range of influence strategies that we have observed authoritarian regimes using on a much broader spectrum of various forms, ranging from soft power influence to malign interference. My colleagues and I at Ned's International Forum have been following and analyzing these trends for more than seven years. And what prompted our efforts to develop a concept to describe the way that authoritarian governments are playing in this gray zone space that we now call sharp power was that a significant majority of observers tended to view many of China and other authoritarian regimes' state-linked foreign engagement efforts, such as the expanded broadcasting of state-backed media outlets, various forms of people-to-people exchanges, state or party-linked research institutions, and the like. They were often doing so through the lens of soft power. 
When various public opinion polls suggested that China was not necessarily winning over foreign publics by cultivating a more favorable view of the country, if you're using soft power as the frame, as this method of analysis implies, it can lead to dismissing those types of activities as perhaps either being benign at best or ineffective at worst. Um, but this approach risks overlooking other facets of how authoritarian governments uh, generally and Beijing in particular, are broadly operating in and beyond their own borders, as well as how they're impacting foreign environments in other surprising ways. When we consider how China has increasingly engaged in things like transnational repression of political dissidents, Uyghur and Tibetan human rights activists and Hong Kong democracy activists, as well as other voices who are vocal in calling attention to human rights abuses or corruption within China's leadership. Um, and this a phenomenon, transnational repression is a phenomenon that both Freedom House and scholars like Alexander Dukalski's have clearly documented. And we consider this as well as in other efforts to both proactively shape the agenda of international organizations and simultaneously shut out independent civil society voices from participating in those bodies. It adds up to something much greater and more alarming. Ultimately, sharp power is about prompting a systemic alteration of expectations across a wide range of countries and institutions to suit authoritarian interests. And when we're talking about China, we're specifically talking about the interests of the Chinese Communist Party and its top leadership, which above all wants to preserve its own power. In the globalized era, where the legitimacy to lead can be affected by international forces beyond the state's borders, that has meant that the CCP has an interest in trying to manage perceptions and limit criticism that might, from its perspective, threaten to undermine its own credibility, not just within the PRC's borders, but anywhere on the world stage. What can be particularly challenging about trying to measure sharp power is that it often manifests in the absences it creates, such as the suppression of pluralism, the censorship of free expression, and the corroded integrity of democratic institutions. How do you identify what isn't there and what's missing from the conversation? The recent global narrative battle that we've seen playing out over Chinese tennis star Peng Shui's whereabouts and her personal well-being after she accused a former CCP official of sexual assault has been a particularly useful illustration. On the one hand, you have the International Olympic Committee saying they connected with her and that she appeared to be fine and well. She's even going to have lunch with Xi Jinping at, uh, during the Olympics, the Winter Olympics in February. On the other hand, the Women's Tennis Association has also spoken out and taken meaningful action by suspending tournaments in China at a real cost to its bottom line. But if the IOC were the only voice in the conversation, and we didn't have these two very different responses from similar types of organizations that could be compared with each other, it would be much more likely that the public spotlight on Pung would have already moved on and casual audiences would be more likely to miss the personal repression she's probably enduring, and the accusations against a CCP leader would have been swept under the rug already. So let me give you um, an analogy to think of as well. And Jessica has done an amazing job since um, a groundbreaking report that Ned put out back in 2017. But let me give you an analogy to kind of take this home a little bit. So let's take an example that actually now in the world of the pandemic might seem a little foreign, going into a restaurant to eat food, okay? You, the customer, you go in, and that chef's goal of the restaurant, it's to persuade you through the dining experience that their food is the best food around. They want to impress you. That's soft power. And something that every country really hopes to achieve through their global interactions. Now, suppose instead the chef has found a way to alter your taste buds in some way before you even step foot into the restaurant so that when you sit down, your taste buds are inclined to love their food, love their restaurant and support that chef's narrative and say that their food really is the best around. Your senses, your taste buds, how you feel things, your hearing, all of that is predisposed to react in a specifically designed way 
towards that interaction at a restaurant. That's sharp power. They're not force feeding you their food through brute force. That's that's a hard form of power. But they're they're altering your tools for your whole entire sensory experience. Our democratic institutions, our online and offline information environment, the elites and news sites that bring us information, business transactions that are supposed to be market-based, our sense of privacy when we use technology, our ability to freely express ourselves and exchange ideas without an authoritarian government's narrative acting as a thumb on the scale. These are democracy's sensory experiences and tools for how we maintain a healthy society and I think a functioning democracy. You mentioned that sharp power is like China manipulating our taste buds before we sit down at the restaurant dining table. I really like this example. However, this seems like a relatively difficult task for China to do. How do you measure sharp power, and what types of Chinese activities does it include? So, you know, getting into how you measure sharp power is something that we often debate a lot amongst ourselves because, you know, it's not about only. Punitive or only positive、uh, incentives that Beijing can bring to bear、um, on foreign countries, but it's really about a, a mix of those two strategies and techniques. And and there is, you know, in the way that the the Chinese Communist Party seeks to shape proactively shape and influence conversations,、uh, you know, part of that is about proactively setting the agenda,、uh, and the other part of that is about. Uh, censorship, and you know whether that's instilling and promoting self-censorship, or actively、uh, trying to alter information that's available at the source. Which there was a, a report series that we just concluded earlier this year on sharp power and democratic resilience, and one of our authors,、uh, Glenn Tiffert, has done a lot of previous research into from his own personal experience. You know, he was trying to; he's a China scholar and. Historian and was trying to do research、uh, with an electronic database and old Chinese law journals, and found that some of the articles were missing、uh, in the database he was looking through, and he never would have discovered that if he didn't have the hard copy records in his own office. She was pretty fortunate to have. So you know, there's a lot of this is something that、uh, my colleagues and I have also called authoritarian curation, where. Effectively, we're at risk of over time seeing certain types of conversations and criticisms of the Chinese Communist Party, parts of it of China's history that it, it wants to、um, cover up or tell in a different way. You, you know, any evidence that is contrary to the narratives that the Chinese Communist Party promotes is at risk of being erased or altered or, or lost in the public domain. And you know, when you Also, add up how in many countries there is often a lack of independent expertise and knowledge、uh, about China.、Um, it, it makes that risk that much greater. Kevin, is there anything you would like to add in terms of Chinese sharp power activities? So, I think the most important thing to remember when thinking about and assessing China's actions abroad to support its model of governance or achieve its goals is really having first and foremost in your mind this: that how the party runs things within China. That dictates and permeates how China operates abroad. That there really isn't a clear dividing line in the party's mind between domestic security and foreign affairs, or between its economic behavior at home or abroad. I think this is why bribery and corruption sometimes seep into so many Belt and Road projects. It's why the United Front Work Department doesn't clearly distinguish between its domestic propaganda and pressure tactics against. Religious minorities or citizens in China versus how they do the same abroad with China's diaspora, its businesses, and other entities that are out in the world. It's why the expectations of companies like the NBA 
Nike, H&M, the International Olympic Committee, or the tennis world are the same expectations they have of Chinese companies to fall in line with the party censorship tactics and political priorities, whether it's be related to Xinjiang or Hong Kong or what have you. I think what's changed this past decade is simply that China is everywhere in the world. I think by nearly every metric, China is a global power and its entities, its businesses, students, embassies, political leaders, vaccines, state media outlets, technologies, they're in every corner of the globe. Some are more effective than others, for sure, uh, but they are a part of the competitive landscape. And that changes the cost calculus, for sure, of many countries, especially in the developing world. And then you encounter these scenarios where democracies feel the need to make a choice between their values or their pocketbook. But we would argue, and I think many others are arguing the same, that that's really a false choice, that there's a way to engage China in a risk-based way that preserves your values, your sovereignty, and still doesn't wall off everything having to do with China, which really is sort of a straw man, unimplementable proposition anyways. Thank you, Kevin. Let's move on to analyzing China's sharp power activities in developed and emerging democracies. Jessica, I understand that the forum just launched a digital resource portal that catalogs incidents and research related to sharp power activities from China and other authoritarian powers. Have China's efforts been more prevalent in certain regions or sectors than in others? If so, which ones and why? Bonnie, thanks for uh, inviting us to bring our newest project into the conversation. The tool we launched just last week is called the Sharp Power Research Portal. It's an interactive database of various reporting and analytical resources that catalog authoritarian sharp power around the world across five public sphere sectors, media and information, culture and entertainment, commerce, knowledge generation and technology. The project is really an organic outgrowth of our own research process through which we've amassed a very large collection of resources related to authoritarian influence activities over many years. So we decided to make a narrower subset of these publicly available to support further research and analysis. It's by no means a complete data set, but it is intended to serve as a launch pad and we hope accelerate pattern recognition of sharp power as it plays out across different countries, regions, and sectors. The vast majority of resources we've collected, more than 600 out of the 750 that we made available at launch, do pertain to China and its sharp power influence. While there are a lot of reasons for this, having perhaps more to do with some of our data collection methods and available public reporting, among other factors, and it shouldn't be taken as a precise ratio measuring China's specific weight relative to other actors in this space. Um, what is very clear from the portal is that China is actively exerting sharp power in every region of the world. And Beijing has undoubtedly emerged as a trendsetter, investing a significant volume of resources in trying to shape norms and standard setting as well as the behaviors of individual actors um, and institutions and conversations in all five of the sectors we track in the portal. It's really amazing when you consider the capacity that's required to do so. But I think part of Beijing's ability to achieve global reach has to do with the signals it sends. It can spend great amounts of money. It can cut off a country's access to China's marketplace, as it has done to Canada, Australia, and other advanced economies, through a mix of both positive and punitive measures. Younger democracies with developing economies observe all of this. At the same time, a lot of societies around the world really don't have significant internal capacities developed to be able to independently assess the reality on the ground inside China and what its true interests are for how it engages with the rest of the world. 
And this is because Beijing restricts access to information and silences its own civil society while simultaneously flooding the global media and information space um, and shaping the conversational agenda within the knowledge sector. If I could add one thing to uh, to this, one thing I think that was a really interesting when we eventually cataloged all of these resources together and put it on this website, you can find it at sharppower.org, is that the country uh, that was considered the most affected country of any other country, if you just simply add up the number of resources in one country and compare them to another, it was the United States. Um, and that's actually because we have very active institutions to help uncover some of these things. We have an active free press. We have a very active research and scholarly community that we're constantly looking at our society and examining it and talking about it publicly. That doesn't necessarily say that the United States is more vulnerable or more affected than Japan or Indonesia or some other country right next to China and its borders. But what it means that is our institutions there are ready and equipped to be able to uncover these things. And it also suggests that, well, there's probably a lot going on in places that don't have some of these same institutions um, that we are fortunate to have here in America. Kevin, that's a very interesting finding. I would not have expected the United States to be the main target of Chinese sharp power. Could you give an example or two of how China has targeted the United States? I would have expected Taiwan to be one of the main, if not top, PRC targets. I would also love to get your thoughts on this. Yeah, let me take your last question first, uh, which is about Taiwan. I think there's Part of this is because our database is just starting, okay? And it's also, we didn't include Chinese language material yet. We're, we're in English, Russian, Arabic, French, and Spanish, but we haven't done Chinese yet. So we'll get there at some point. So that'll bring in some of the Taiwan examples. And many of uh, the Taiwan examples too have been rolled up in one specific report really done by a couple of really great organizations, and we haven't cataloged every single incident. These are research resources, not necessarily incidents of sharp power. In terms of the United States, one really interesting example that shows the sort of effects of sharp power and how it's not just on one organization, but actually can have some carry-on effects and others involved or others with supposed equities in the issue. I think everyone tracks things related to Hollywood. I know a lot of folks paid attention to the China community to the boycotts against Nike and H&M. But if you go back to what happened with the NBA and, and Daryl Morey and his tweet about Hong Kong and the suspension of NBA activities in China, at the height of that controversy, Washington Post, um, through reporting by Isaac Stonefish, did a great roll-up of what happened from the outside of the NBA during this controversy. And he pointed out to what happened with um, a senior news director at ESPN, again, not the NBA, but ESPN, separate entity, that at the height of that controversy mandated that the network's coverage should avoid any political discussions about China and Hong Kong, according to a leaked memo that another organization found, which is a real shocking directive for the biggest political sports story of 2019, right? ESPN even broadcast a map at the time that included Taiwan as a part of China and, of course, a dotted line to represent China's disputed claims in the South China Sea. I mean, this sort of thing wasn't just about how the NBA acted, but others followed suit because they felt like their supposed equities were at stake. In this case, ESPN's business in China, which probably was never really threatened at the time. So it just shows you the effects of sharp power can really go beyond sort of that individual targeted entity. Jessica, one tactic that China uses, as pointed out in your team's research, is leveraging its economic power over governments or industries to control narratives and censor negative information about China. Can you share how China has utilized this tactic in developed democracies? One of the goals that China and other authoritarian actors use is really 
what the experts who contributed to our Sharp Power and Democratic Resilience report series have termed elite capture. Uh, and this is elite capture through which the driving interests of local elites in a targeted country are repurposed to serve not the interests of domestic constituencies, but those of a foreign party. And the real secret and surprising angle to this technique is that these types of corrosive capital investments don't always need to be that large. Um, there tends to be a lot of attention given to the dollar value uh, that's ascribed to uh, a loan or um, uh, the size of an economic agreement. But in reality, it's more about how strategically those investments are focused. Um, so, for example, by directing them towards more highly visible types of projects uh, in strategically important industries like infrastructure and the energy sector, it's easier for China to, to be able to make a bigger apparent splash in an economy. Other ways that uh, China is trying to throw its weight around in the commercial and business sphere uh, globally, sometimes they, it doesn't, the target is not always necessarily a particular country or economy, but uh, it can be institutions that help shape perceptions, uh, such as the World Bank. There was a lot of attention given recently to an independent investigation and uh, as well as comments from from independent observers who'd been asked to audit the doing business report. You know, and it was found that there there were efforts to pressure the leadership of the World Bank to alter its methodology in a way that would have, you know, could have given China a, a boost in its rankings in, the, in that report. All of these efforts are about trying to, you know, paint the impression that that China has a lot to offer, which it, it does uh, financially and economically to the rest of the world. But you can see the evidence of how China is trying to shape those narratives. I think another interesting example of sharp power in the commerce sphere actually shows up in the way that China has conducted some of its so-called vaccine diplomacy around the world. In our sharp power research portal, we actually have a really interesting example from Peru, where a local media outlet did an investigation, used FOIA proceedings to get a hold of uh, the government's agreement with Sinopharm. And what they discovered was that Sinopharm offered an extra 2,000 doses of its vaccine to the country that were und previously undisclosed publicly. And these were to be given to government officials, including those who were responsible with overseeing the review of um, the safety and efficacy of the vaccine and whether, you know, determining whether or not it could be distributed in Peru. Um, there was also a clause in that agreement that was signed in which a, a high level government official, which ended up being the president of the country at the time, should be publicly vaccinated with the vaccine, uh, you know, theoretically to, again, prove its efficacy and promote it among the public. But, you know, when you really think about it, this is also effectively um, a form of corruption and could be seen as a form of political influence. Let's now move from economics to the information space. Kevin, the Chinese government has aggressively pushed out disinformation. How would you describe China's capacity to spread disinformation and propaganda abroad? How does this system operate and what is its goal? Where does China's state media fit in? So I think it's pretty clear from the research that we've done and many other people in this field have done that, that China wants to shape how democracies consume information. And I think this happens through both traditional and non-traditional investment in the media industry, 
um, but also through more covert means, such as outright disinformation, dissemination in social media. Back to my earlier point, I think within China, the party propaganda system infects every aspect of media, both foreign and domestic. And again, the goals of that system, they're the same goals that Chinese state-backed media companies or its online behavior, authentic or inauthentic, they dominate China's media landscape. And they have that same effect and that same purpose and goal in mind in foreign markets. Let me mention a couple of examples to give you a sense of how this type of influence happens in practice. And all of these are detailed in the Sharp Power Research Portal at sharppower.org that Jessica mentioned earlier. So first example, let's start with state media investments. And this is actually partly is, is, is put into context by a great report that Sarah Cook of Freedom House did in the Sharp Power and Democratic Resilience working paper series that, that finished up earlier this summer. So in Italy, a series of private MOUs um, had been struck over the years between Italian broadcasters and China Radio International to help provide foreign and China-focused content for a variety of local Italian outlets. For Mish, which is the Italian media outlet, covered the story. And a media research forum, uh, they cataloged all of the Italian TV and radio broadcast affiliates coverage of aid to Italy during and after the heights of Italy's first wave of COVID back in the spring of 2020. And they concluded that China received at least three times as much media coverage over its COVID-19 aid to Italy than each of Russia, the US or the EU. But in reality, though, China's aid to Italy was purchased personal protective equipment, not donated, like masks and things. And U.S. aid was a donated $125 million from the U.S. government and private sector. Now, China's efforts had an impressive effect, actually, on public polling in Italy about China and an uptick, really, in public Italian positive perceptions of China. And you can't simply chalk China's efforts up to good public diplomacy. There's the purchase of content rights and state media partnerships with existing independent or public broadcasting firms in Italy that really changed, again, back to this point earlier, the taste buds and sensory mechanisms of Italian society at the time. That's not a level playing field when China's propaganda system is the main version of what everyday citizens hear about China's interactions with your society, or worse, its policies in, say, Xinjiang or Hong Kong. State-backed media organizations like CGTN and China Radio International, they have dramatically expanded their reach abroad. Um, CRI, for example, is now in the 65 languages as of just two years ago. And each of these outlets provide a highly sanitized view of China when it comes to news coverage. But they often buy up licenses and smaller enterprise to gain footholds and content sharing arrangements in markets struggling to produce content on foreign affairs in China, um, especially when journalists and so forth, they can't really get into China because of all of the repression against foreign journalists that's happening in China. So that's the state media side. Online, through social media, uh, China's propaganda and disinformation networks have become, I think, more varied in their approach. Sometimes they're rather unsophisticated and ineffective operations, but some other times, like through their co-optation and payment of YouTube social media influencers, they reach a lot of uninformed audiences. And if you remember last fall 2020, at the height of Chinese vitriol towards Australia, Zhao Lijian, the Chinese MFA spokesperson, tweeted a really gruesome picture about an Australian soldier and a young Afghan girl. After he tweeted that, the Australian Strategic Policy Institute Cybersecurity Policy Center they uncovered uh, an unusually large number of accounts that were created on the same day as Zhao's controversial tweet. These accounts joined Twitter for the first time. They had no followers. Their own activity was to like and retweet Zhao Lijian's tweet. And additionally, out of the approximately 10,000 accounts involved in the replies to Zhao's controversial tweet, a different cyber cybersecurity firm found that 57% of those that engaged Zhao's tweet were considered fake and about 8% of them were accounts created just within the last 24 hours before Zhao's controversial tweet. 
So here you see the coordination between inauthentic online accounts, trolls, bots, what have you, and official Chinese statements and propaganda. Elsewhere, a researcher with the Rhodium Group cataloged some seemingly benign accounts set up by subnational tourism boards and governments within China. And it sort of shows how some of this propaganda seeps into online environments in a much more subtle way than these inauthentic behavior. And this researcher found that in these uh, Facebook accounts, information about touring that province or doing business there, it became intermingled with all sorts of false political messages that clearly was Chinese state propaganda about things like China's treatment of its minorities and other policies that, are, that China wants to portray a, a much more positive light on. Let me broaden the discussion a bit to look at China compared to other countries. So I know your research covers both China and Russia. What are some of the similarities between how China and Russia exercise sharp power? First, in terms of its goals, I think Russia's goals are to sow chaos and confusion in democracies, where China's goals is really to sow support for the party and China's foreign policy goals writ large. So it's a good example is kind of what Russia has done in electioneering around the world, in Europe, United States, etc. But China's goals are really more about spreading its views and spreading, seeding uh, support for China's goals within different societies. In terms of coordination between the two, I think that's a really interesting question. We've seen a couple of instances and reports on this. So Alliance for Securing Democracy uh, puts out a really great product called Hamilton 2.0, where they've talked about different Twitter accounts and they measure them and they analyze them in this really fantastic way. And they measure China, Russia, and Iran. And they've, they've looked at how Russia has sometime amplified Chinese propaganda. Chinese uh, accounts have amplified Russian propaganda. Even just this past week and lead up to the Summer for Democracy, Chinese and Russian ambassadors co-penned co uh, an bed together in a local think tank magazine talking about, you know, the summit for democracy and how it's a, you know, a terrible thing. We weren't invited. You know, our version of democracy is far better and all sorts. So there really is some measure of growing coordination. Their goals, I think, are different. Obviously, Russia is more interested in its Western border in Europe and probably to the United States. China's interests are much more global in scope. That's clear from what we've found in our research database, but also that's clear in a lot of other databases that are out there that measure Chinese power and compare them perhaps to Russian power. You know, the comment I'd really like to add would focus on the convergence of shared interests that all of these actors have and essentially making the world safer for autocracy and for authoritarian regimes to operate. And so part of that is about promoting new international norms. One good example is uh, this concept of Internet sovereignty through which, you know, authoritarian governments like China and Russia have been trying to make the case that it should be up to states and uh, governments to determine the shape of, of the Internet within that country and what kind of content is allowed online and what constitutes problematic online behavior. And this is essentially a way to give uh, those actors more control over the internet. And uh, this is, um, you know, not just China and Russia support this, but a number of other illiberal governments around the world are happy to hop on, hop on board because it, it works in their interests. I'd like to now move to a uh, final set of questions that will explore what can democracies do? and how resilient are democracies and civil society to China's sharp power. So Kevin, let me start with you. What are the critical advantages and disadvantages that democratic countries face with respect to PRC sharp power? And how has China tried to maximize the success of its efforts? So I think what makes democracies like ours and others more vulnerable to outside influence, perhaps, is also what makes them very resilient. Democracies, we wear our problems on our sleeves. They're out in the open. We talk about them open. We write about them. Our leaders talk about them. We have a political system that's geared to highlight differences between groups of people and, and citizens. January 6th and the George Floyd protests, they were broadcast to the world with no censorship. 
while these sort of dynamics make democracies appear to the outside world as weak or out of control, they're actually democracy in motion, sorting through the maze of checks and balances and institutions meant to keep democracies running effectively and with full citizen participation. Authoritarian governments, on the other hand, they hide their weaknesses. They constantly project strength, sometimes appearing far stronger than they really are. Just recently in the National Endowment for Democracy's Journal for Democracy, Peter Krekow wrote about this a lot. Soviet weaknesses during the Cold War, it's really one good example of this, when in fact they projected strength abroad, but really internally they were quite weak. But I think it also applies to a view that has emerged now of China's supposedly inevitable, unstoppable march to overtake the United States or maintain its own economic trajectory. This focus on transparency of democracies and and highlighting our weaknesses and, and letting those be out in the open. It's exactly what makes us strong. Uh, the growing awareness through uh, strong journalism practices, government regulations that require transparency and state-backed interactions with our media or Congress or lobbying efforts, all of these things, they provide democracy the means to self-correct, to inform our citizens and businesses about the potential risks of engaging China, Russia, or another aggressive foreign power. So Kevin, what you seem to be saying is that events like the January 6 riot may have unintended positive benefits for democracies by exposing tensions within society and allowing for opportunities to better educate the public. Is that one of the strengths of democracies? Well, I wouldn't say that January 6 was a good thing that we ought to repeat often or to make ourselves a more healthy democracy. But I would say that, that our system is out in the open. And that may project a, a, a sense of weakness, I think, from Chinese leadership and sort of they feel like democracy is up for debate, really, or they can go after ideas that are being permeated through the Summit for Democracy the way they're doing this week in the lead up to uh, the Summit for Democracy here in December. But I think more than anything, it's that these uh, ways of talking about things openly and the transparency in which our society has about all things foreign influence, about everyday news is that this is actually what allows our citizens and our businesses and other people who aren't attuned to these sort of like highly academic and specific things about sharp power. It allows them to engage with it and allows them to be ready to when the next sort of peng shui case comes up, they understand this and they know that China is very different than another power that's out there. Um, and allows us to be able to approach these issues on an everyday citizen basis in an entirely different way than if all these weaknesses were hidden, they were censored, they were, they were tucked away under the rug somewhere the way that another authoritarian government government would handle things. So this week, civil society and government leaders will meet at the Summit for Democracy and focus on many of the issues that we discussed today. I'd like to end this podcast with a final question for both of you. So how should democracies respond to sharp power efforts from China or other autocratic countries? What steps should civil society groups take to expand on the strengths of democratic institutions in combating sharp power or disinformation? One thing that civil society in particular can do is help address you know, what we've identified as persistent political literacy gaps regarding China. You know, there's a, there are many reasons why many societies around the world lack independent capacity to do so, but civil society groups that are able to focus on, you know, for example, those that uh, may have been more accustomed to following domestic corruption, they may already have some knowledge that they can bring to bear about their country's procurement laws and processes uh, and what steps should be followed in order to ensure full transparency and accountability around economic agreements and uh, development projects that are happening in their country. If those institutions were to then also make sure that they're learning about, you know, not just what China's doing in their country, but around the world, and they're subjecting um, Chinese firms and other actors to the same level of scrutiny that they would expect from their own government or any foreign government, foreign business or multinational firm, you know, they can 
help shine a light and make sure that, you know, even though there's this perception that that China might withhold funding if they don't get their way, you know, they can give those societies a little bit more evidence to bring to the negotiating table or help them start out with a strong uh, and more firm footing when they negotiate the terms of an agreement. It's also really important for democracies and civil society institutions to express solidarity with one another and to the extent that they can act in unity. And this is a lot easier said than done. But, you know, one really interesting example of this uh, that I would like to point to is uh, a few years ago, there was a lot of attention, negative attention, uh, of course, rightfully so, brought to bear on some instances where um, university presses and individual academic database providers were censoring their content in the Chinese marketplace at the request of the Chinese government. And in response, the in response, the Association of University Presses put out a statement of guiding principles on facing censorship from foreign governments. It, it, essentially, you know, it was just a re-expressing of, of the values of, you know, academic freedom and ensuring that academic authors should be able to write and publish according to the research that they've conducted without, you know, foreign interference. And, you know, I think a statement like that is very powerful, actually, and is something that perhaps different industries and uh, groups of institutions can think about putting together, at least simply to plant a flag and to encourage one another to, you know, that collectively it's a lot easier to resist these types of pressures than, um, you know, as individual institutions. Yeah, I, I think Jessica's exactly right. Dealing with sharp power requires not just having sort of good governance mechanisms in place, but they really require a special set of resiliency measures. Democratic unity is incredibly important. And one of the really interesting things is uh, Australia Strategic Policy Institute put out a great study on coercion and on Chinese coercion. And they talked about how uh, China rarely went after groups of organizations or groups of countries, is that they always prefer to pick folks off one by one. And so right now, like, for example, the Women's Tennis Association put out this fantastic statement sort of defending Peng Shui and talking about its business in China and its values. But where's the ATP tour? Where's the International Olympic Committee? Where are its friends within civil society? These sort of responses and like-minded responses, they need to be automatic. Um, if I could say one more thing about disinformation issues, which I think requires an even special set of resiliency measures, I think what's really needed now is a globally connected network of civil society response providers to deal with these issues. That is China, Russia, a lot of other sources of disinformation go global, that these organizations need to be more networked and they need to be learned from each other and adapt in some different ways than maybe even they are right now. And I think civil society is poised to do this well. I've been incredibly impressed since I've left government and joined the National Endowment. I've really been impressed by the strength and innovation of fact checkers, investigative journalists, business and labor associations, researchers, activists, all of these entities in civil society. And they, I think, simply relying on government regulation or national security agencies to deal with disinformation, it's honestly a really slippery slope. And it's one that's likely to fail with issues related to protecting free speech and the lack of credibility of that a foreign government like the United States may or may not have in different places in the world. All these things at play really position civil society to take a leadership role in this regard. But they need resources. They need better access. They need a bigger role and not just a kid's seat at the regulatory table or within platforms like Facebook and Twitter. Thank you very much, Jessica. And thank you very much, Kevin, for this excellent discussion on Chinese sharp power and what democracy should do to counter such Chinese activities. For our podcast listeners, I wanted to give you a heads up that we will not be releasing an episode on December 21st because of the Christmas holiday. Instead, we will be returning in early January. 
Happy holidays in advance, and stay tuned for more episodes from the China Power Podcast in January 2022. Hey, China Power listeners! I'm Mike Green, host of the Asia Chessboard Podcast, and I'm inviting you to check out our conversations with the most prominent strategic thinkers on Asia as we discuss the hard calls and consequential debates that drive U.S. policy towards this critical region of the world. The Asia Chessboard explores the historical context. An inside decision-making process on major geopolitical developments, from the Himalayas to the South China Sea. Find us wherever you get your podcasts, or at csis.org.